0: This is a CBC Podcast.
1: Hi, I'm Dr. Brian Goldman. Welcome to The Dose. Since people began getting very sick from COVID-19, there's been a lot of concern about having enough medical supplies of all kinds. That includes ventilators for very ill patients who need help breathing as their condition becomes critical. Like other countries, Canada's federal government has been stepping up efforts to meet the possible demand for ventilators, Earlier this month it announced that a group of Canadian companies have been tapped to deliver up to 30,000 ventilators within the next few weeks. While that increased supply of ventilators is good news no one wants to be in a position where we would need one. How many of us really understand the risks that come with being placed on a ventilator? And while it's too early for doctors to be certain concerns have been raised that in some patients with the coronavirus mechanical ventilators may in some cases do more harm than good. So today on The Dose, we're tackling the question, what do I need to know about ventilators in light of COVID-19? Joining me to help us understand that is Dr. Ruben Strayer. He's an emergency physician and associate medical director of Maimonides Medical Center in Brooklyn, New York. He's the author of the widely read blog, Emergency Medicine Updates, emupdates.com. He's an expert on managing critically ill patients with airway and breathing problems, He's also a maven on medical decision making and errors. Hi, uh, Ruben, It's Brian Goldman here. How you doing?
0: Hi. How are you? Nice to speak with you.
1: Nice to speak with you too. And uh, and uh, um, you know, I, you've been you've been hit in more ways than one, I gather. I understand that you're homesick from work with COVID yourself. How are you feeling?
0: Yeah, I'm hanging in there. It's uh, I'm on day of illness number five or so. It's like a really bad flu, but um, I think I'm gonna I think I'm gonna pull through.
1: You sound fantastic.
0: You don't sound like oh, you're I'm, sick. I'm glad you think so. It doesn't. I don't. I don't feel fantastic, but uh, uh, hopefully uh, that won't be too obvious to your listeners.
1: And obviously, not needing a ventilator, so we're glad about that. So, getting to the topic at hand, let's start with the basics of ventilators. I know this, but for our listeners, explain how they work.
0: So, mechanical ventilation is a way that we support the respiration of people who can't breathe by themselves, basically. So when someone has respiratory failure, so they're not breathing, they're not able to breathe, uh, we make them unconscious so they'll tolerate us putting a tube down their throat, a plastic tube down their throat into their trachea. And then we connect that plastic tube to uh, a mechanical ventilator, a machine, that allows us to fully control uh, the patient's lungs so we can breathe for the patient.
1: So that's what you do. Uh, In the case of severe respiratory illness, at what point do you start thinking that a patient needs a ventilator?
0: That's always an important question. Until recently, I think most uh, emergency docs had a good idea about what kind of patients needed to be put on a ventilator and when. This has all been turned on its head in the coronavirus pandemic because coronavirus patients with respiratory failure behave differently. For example, uh, we commonly use the oxygen saturation to give us a marker of exactly when the patient's lungs are failing badly. With coronavirus, we've just seen that these patients are behaving differently, and their saturation uh, doesn't seem to be a good reflection of how well their lungs are working. This has been referred to as the happy hypoxic patient, and it was the cause of a lot of discussion a couple of weeks ago when everyone started noticing this, which was patients who would come to the emergency room, they would show up, And they would be maybe mildly distressed. They'd be a little bit um, short of breath, but not particularly. And they would be speaking in full sentences, and they'd have a normal mental status, but they would have sometimes alarmingly low saturations. And this really threw a wrench into our usual decision-making in terms of who needs what kind of respiratory support.
1: So to be clear about that, um, ordinarily, under normal circumstances, a patient who doesn't have COVID, that patient... Um, would definitely need a ventilator. And you're saying that that, that they may not need one uh, if, if they have COVID and their oxygen saturation is a little lower than you would have expected.
0: So there's been a big shift in how we think about intubating COVID patients over the past month. Um, based on the experience of the countries that uh, were hit hardest early on, so China and Italy, we adopted the advice, mostly from the Italians, that suggested that patients who come in with COVID who aren't able to be adequately supported with low flow oxygen. So low flow oxygen would just be like a standard nasal cannula, that little plastic thing that just fits in your nose, or just a simple face mask, the kind of thing that you see people being put on in the ambulance all the time. We should just jump immediately to mechanical ventilation, which is making the patient unconscious and putting a breathing tube down their throat and attaching them to a ventilator. And so when the first wave of critically ill COVID patients arrived in New York City about a month ago. We were following that advice, and we were putting all of them on mechanical ventilation, intubating all these patients. And it became obvious that this was not a sustainable strategy because we were intubating five, six, seven, eight patients in a single shift. Furthermore, around that time, we started to learn of outcomes data from China and Italy that was showing alarmingly poor outcomes from patients who were being intubated. people who were put on mechanical ventilation were doing very, very poorly. Given that we didn't feel like we could sustain the level of intubation rates that we were carrying out at the early stages of the pandemic when it swept through New York City. And given that patients who were being put on mechanical ventilation were doing so poorly, we pivoted as a group, we figured this out over social media in fact, and through lots of discussions, sort of decided as a unit that we were going to try to temporize these patients with non-invasive oxygenation therapies so that we could either prevent intubation or delay intubation
1: so so that i 'm clear, you know, I understand non invasive, but non invasive means not putting them on a ventilator, trying anything but putting them on a ventilator uh, to 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 see if you can get them feeling better without having to put them on a ventilator
0: The two major modalities that we 're using uh, as alternatives to mechanical ventilation in patients who fail low flow oxygen are the high flow nasal cannula, which looks like sort of like a a beefed up nasal cannula. It has big thick tubing, it fits in your nose but it uses a special machine that heats the air and humidifies it. And uh, because of that, it can pump huge amounts of of oxygen into your nose. And so that's a high flow nasal cannula. And then the other modality is uh, what's referred to as non-invasive ventilation or um, non-invasive positive pressure ventilation, which most people know as CPAP or BiPAP. And this generally works uh, by using a mask that covers up the, the nose and the mouth a lot of people with obstructive sleep apnea use a CPAP mask at night, and uh, this device is able to apply air and oxygen under pressure and so can really augment our ability to provide a high, a high level of oxygenation to these patients. Uh, some of these patients we can temporize um, with high flow nasal cannula or non-invasive ventilation, and we can get them through their COVID lung disease course uh, over some days just using these modalities, which is a huge win for everyone, especially the patient. And then in some patients, uh, they end up needing to progress to mechanical ventilation anyway. But the number of days that they need to have on the ventilator is reduced from, let's say, seven, eight, nine to four, five, six, just to make up some numbers. And that's also a huge win because every day, that a person is on mechanical ventilation is a day that they are extremely vulnerable and a day that they, they require an extraordinary, extraordinary level of intensive care to keep them safe.
1: When you're deciding to put somebody on a ventilator who doesn't have COVID, um, generally speaking, we're not talking about one disease or another. There's many kinds. There's chronic obstructive lung disease. There's asthma. There's heart failure. There's many reasons to put somebody on a, on, on a ventilator. Can you speak to that?
0: Sure. Uh, The most common reason is a failure of lung function. So the most easy to understand, I think, uh, would be someone with a terrible pneumonia. There's so much infection in their lung that their breathing just isn't adequate to get enough oxygen into the body. And so in order to support the body's oxygen requirements, we put them on a ventilator, and that allows us to do two things. Number one we can provide 100% oxygen through that tube. Number two, we can take over their work of breathing, especially for patients who are tiring out, who have been breathing really hard for for days and need help to breathe.
1: I think a lot of people may be hearing this discussion around the need to produce more ventilators and assume that it's like a magic bullet to save people from COVID-19. And that may be true in some cases, but even outside of this disease, ventilation comes with risks. What are those?
0: So anyone who is put on a mechanical ventilator, again, is uh, susceptible to all sorts of harms. The first kinds of harms have to do with the fact that they are paralyzed and sedated, motionless in a bed, in a hospital bed. Again, that sets up the patient for infections, bed sores, being put on a, a ventilator. Having that endotracheal tube in your trachea is an infection risk in and of itself, but also... The ventilator, at the same time that it may be required to save someone's life, also is damaging to the lung. The lung is designed to work with negative pressure, meaning that when you take a breath, you create a negative pressure gradient so that air flows from the outside world into your lung. That's very different than what a ventilator does. With a ventilator, you're applying positive pressure, you're blowing the air into the lung, and That's maybe necessary to save the patient's life, but on some level also injures the lungs. So it's a tightrope that intensivists routinely walk of how much support to provide the lung to maximize the health outcomes while minimizing the harm caused by the ventilator itself.
1: In the very early days of the pandemic as it hit New York City, how many people were you ventilating at that time? How many people were you putting on ventilators?
0: We were seeing... Um, between 5 and 10 patients in a 12-hour span that had respiratory failure. And we were intubating all of those patients. In pre-COVID days, we would, in a 12-hour shift, uh, maybe intubate one or two. So we saw the number of patients that we were intubating go up by a factor of 5 to 10. That's huge. It's crazy. And there's no way that um, the hospital could support uh, that number of people on mechanical ventilators forgetting whether or not there's enough ventilators now it turns out that the concerns around having enough ventilators didn't bear out to be a big problem we've had enough ventilators
1: so do you think the public's making a big deal too much of a big deal about ventilators that they're 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 more obsessed with the number of ventilators than say you are yes
0: uh This has been a bit of a media frenzy, this idea of a a ventilator shortage and uh, the possible need to go on an allocation protocol where physicians are making life and death rationing decisions. The problem is critical care resources. The ventilator is only one part of the critical care resource team that's required to have someone on mechanical ventilation.
1: I want people listening to this to understand what hospital resources are used when somebody's intubated and placed on a ventilator.
0: Putting someone on a ventilator is a a highly resource intensive maneuver. In order to do it, you have to make the patient completely unconscious so that they will tolerate having a tube in their throat. And often these patients are paralyzed um, for a variety of reasons. And a paralyzed patient who's completely unconscious is highly vulnerable to all sorts of problems, to infections, to bed sores. This is what ICUs are designed to do. You have very low nursing ratios, like one nurse to one patient or one nurse to two patients. And that allows nurses to spend a lot of time with each of their patients so that they can very closely monitor any change that's happening with a patient so they can react to it. What's happened in COVID is that there's been so many of these patients. We've exceeded um, the number of critical care beds that we have in the hospital, often by a factor of five. And we, we are seeing now that intensive care is being delivered all over the hospital in areas that were never designed for intensive care. This is, in many ways, a triumph of ingenuity and being nimble and adapting to a horrible circumstance. But it's also true that patients who are, for example, requiring critical care, but are still in the emergency department, are not receiving as good care as they would if they were in an ICU.
1: And during those early days, you must have been receiving the results of studies and anecdotal experience coming from Italy, coming from China, on the success rate of putting people with severe COVID-19 onto ventilators. What were, what were those studies telling you? What, was that, what were those anecdotal reports telling you?
0: So this was all descriptive data, which means that this was just folks who were just describing what happened in their environment. So the early reports out of China and Italy um, demonstrated that people who were being put on ventilators were doing very, very poorly with mortality upwards of 70 percent, which is just an extraordinary burden of mortality. And that caused us to question whether putting these people on ventilators early was the right move
1: you know, you've got a modality here, ventilation that you're using. You're using it a lot, like five to 10 more times than usual. Like, what were you feeling as, as you were putting people on ventilators and hearing these anecdotal reports coming from Italy and China?
0: Uh, it was very distressing. Um, we knew that uh, many of the patients that we were putting on ventilators were going to get sicker and succumb to COVID, even though we were doing everything we knew how to do to support them. And this is part of what drove the shift away from placing these patients on mechanical ventilators at the outset of their care, uh, a shift towards using non-invasive ventilation and high, high flow nasal cannula and hopefully give them a shot to fly through their illness without ever being put on a ventilator.
1: Between today's wellness fads and news about tomorrow's medical breakthroughs, it's hard to know what health information actually applies to you. Luckily, there's a podcast that breaks through the noise. TED Health from the TED Audio Collective. Join host Dr. Shoshana Ungerleiter as she introduces you to leading health experts that break down the questions you didn't know you had. Will eating a plant-based diet make you healthier? How does your neighborhood impact your health? How will medical treatments change in the future? Learn all this and more on TED Health. Find TED Health wherever you get your podcasts. Is the issue that we really don't know enough about the virus to know how effective the machine can be? Well, we certainly don't
0: know nearly enough about how to treat COVID pneumonia and COVID lung disease. Um, Ventilator strategies uh, are being constantly debated. Specific therapies for COVID are being Hotly contested at the highest levels, including by our president. And unfortunately, until we have experimental data, trials that randomize patients to a group that receives the therapy and a group that re- does not receive the therapy, until we have that type of prospective comparative data, everything is just an observation. It's just an opinion. We don't need any more opinions uh, in, in managing COVID. We need, we need science, we need experimental data, we need to know what works. We're going to know. We're going to know in the coming months, but until then, we're still largely shooting into the dark.
1: How frustrating is that for you?
0: It's hard. Uh, Most of us have have never been exposed to so many people with such a serious disease that we know so little about and we feel so powerless to provide effective therapies.
1: I want you to take me back to the first patient that uh, you decided to do a 180 on and not put them on a ventilator because, you know, your your gut, your, your experience says this patient needs a ventilator. I want you to take me to that first patient where you didn't do it.
0: Well, it was a very easy transition to make because what it amounts to is reverting to the type of support that we provided patients before COVID. We just uh, put them on the, let's say, high-flow nasal cannula or the CPAP, BiPAP machine and see how they did. The caveat is there is this additional concern with COVID patients that providing non-invasive ventilation therapies for them could aerosolize the virus in their bodies and potentially infect other patients and providers.
1: I was told not to use any of these techniques because it might cause the virus to become aerosolized. So if somebody's you know under that high pressure, weren't you taught the same thing?
0: Well, this is partly why we inherited this recommendation to intubate early. We don't have good science to tell us how legitimate those concerns are. We have good techniques um, that we've been using to try to minimize the aerosolization of viral particles in patients who are receiving high flow nasal cannula therapy or non-invasive ventilation. So for example, we'll put a surgical mask on top of a high flow nasal cannula. We are using viral filters um, all along the circuit in our CPAP and BiPAP machines. And it's important to recognize that the risk for other patients, healthcare providers, is never going to be zero. Every COVID patient, even just standing and walking around that you see ambulatory in your clinic, they are also aerosolizing viral particles when they breathe or when they cough. The risk is never zero. We have to balance our mandate to care for patients and provide the best best care for patients with our mandate to protect ourselves.
1: In addition to CPAP and BiPAP and high flow oxygen, I've also seen uh, reports of putting patients in the prone position. What can you tell me about that?
0: Um, Certainly most patients who are receiving oxygenation therapies are on their back lying down. But what we've found is that in this particular disease, flipping patients on their side, or onto their stomach in the prone position can sometimes dramatically improve oxygenation.
1: So when you do all these things, flipping the patient over high-flow oxygen, maybe CPAP, maybe BiPAP, in what percentage of cases are, are you able to take a patient who you thought was going to end up on a ventilator and they don't end up needing one?
0: Uh, well, that's the million-dollar question, Brian. Um, we don't have good answers to that question yet. I think we will. Um, anecdotally, we can just say that there are Lots of patients that we've seen that have pulled through their COVID pneumonia illness um, without being intubated, that if we had followed the intubate early paradigm, they would have been intubated. And so that's, that can only be thought of as a win.
1: Having done this myself, I know that putting patients with COVID-19 on a ventilator is just about the riskiest thing we do because of the risk that we get COVID from the patients we intubate. And I wanted to know, do you have any idea how you got infected with COVID-19? Uh, No, I mean, I um,
0: work in a busy emergency department in New York City. Um, Over the past month, the vast majority of patients who are in the emergency department have COVID. I think many of my colleagues have COVID. Everyone in the city seems to have COVID. Um, So I've been swimming in COVID, just like all of my colleagues. I suspect that when the dust settles, we're going to find that the vast majority of us um, are going to have antibodies to COVID. Some of us got sick, some of us got very sick. Some of us got a little sick. Some of us didn't get sick. But there's so much COVID uh, in New York City right now. It is so prevalent that I think it's almost impossible um, for someone who is working with patients in the hospital to, um, to avoid being exposed.
1: Let's bring it back to listeners. They're hearing all kinds of information about the benefits and the potential risks of ventilators, how effective they are. How do they incorporate this new knowledge into maybe making a decision uh, beforehand or thinking about what they would want should they need a ventilator uh, because they have COVID-19? That's
0: a really difficult uh, question. I can tell you that right now physicians are really struggling um, with very incomplete knowledge as to which patients with COVID need to be intubated and when they need to be intubated. So if physicians don't know, it's really difficult to... Put that on the patient and to think that a patient is going to be able to make an informed choice i think it's always going to be case by case and it's going to be a difficult decision that patients family members and doctors have to make
1: together we don't have complete information right now there's a lot of science to do but at this point in time why don't you give me two or three bottom lines regarding ventilators and people with covid 19.
0: There are are some patients with COVID who are so severely affected that they have profound uh, respiratory failure and there's clearly no other option than to put them on the ventilator. Those patients are going to require mechanical ventilation and intensive care. For everyone else, the benefits of mechanical ventilation have to be weighed against the harms, which is extraordinarily difficult to do right now because at the moment, we just don't have enough data and we just have a lot to learn.
1: Dr. Ruben Strayer, I appreciate you taking the time to speak with us when you are homesick with COVID-19 yourself, and I hope you feel better soon.
0: Pleasure was mine, Brian.
1: Take care now. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Dr. Ruben Strayer is an emergency physician and associate medical director at Maimonides Medical Center in Brooklyn, New York. He's the author of the blog, Emergency Medicine Updates, emupdates.com. Here's your dose of smart advice on ventilators. Some patients who are critically ill with COVID-19 need a ventilator. But doctors on the front lines are finding that the old rules about who needs a ventilator are in need of a shakeup. A surprising number of seriously ill patients with the coronavirus can get by with high oxygen flow, CPAP, and being flipped on their stomach. Doctors like Ruben Strayer say we need a lot more studies to figure everything out. What we do know is that things like staying home, washing hands, and self-isolating are still the best things you can do. At The Dose, we'll continue to bring you the best information we can on COVID-19. If you have questions about COVID-19, let us know what they are, and we'll do our best to get you some answers. Email us at thedose@cbc.ca. at cbc.ca. You can tweet me at Night MD or the other show I host, White Coat Black Art, at CBC White Coat. Remember to use the hashtag #thedosecbc. You can find The Dose wherever you get your podcasts. This edition of The Dose was produced by Ariane Robinson, Donna Dingwall, and me with digital support from Fabiola Carletti. Thanks to Austin Pomeroy for technical support. The Dose wants you to be better informed about your health, but if you're looking for medical advice, see your health care provider. I'm Dr. Brian Goldman. Until your next dose.